This episode of the Tech on Tap podcast, we talk with NetApp's chief evangelist, Jeff Baxter, about ONTAP 9.2. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi, Glenn Sizemore, and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi and in the studio with me today is the indisputable Glenn Sizemore. Hi, Glenn. How you doing, Justin? Doing great. Uh, we have a very special episode for you today. It's actually episode two of a three-episode week. It's a trifecta. It's release week here at NetApp. It is release week, so we, we decided we were going to do multiple releases in light of being out of the loop the last two weeks. Uh, so Monday, we kicked it off with the Storage Grid WebScale 10.4 release. Uh, Thursday, May 11th, we're doing the ONTAP 9.2 release, which is this show. And then Friday, we'll be picking it up with Veeam's 9.5 Update 2 release. To talk about the ONTAP 9.2 release, we brought in Mr. Jeff Baxter. Uh, he's going to tell you all about what he does here at NetApp and how to get in touch with him on social media. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Sounds like you're going to be going to daily podcast pretty soon here. We can yeah, start releasing <laughs> You know, on tap daily, you can do a podcast daily, it'll all work out. Yeah, yeah, we could, act, you know, I got nothing better to do. So, this is uh, true. This <laughs> is true. I mean, while well, we're staying true, right? Uh, this is Jeff Baxter. I'm the chief evangelist for on tap here at NetApp. I've been here about nine years. Um, most of that time actually spent out in the field, uh, culminating with a stint as CTO for the Americas. And uh, then they asked me roughly about eight months ago to hop over to our product operations group where I helped sort of drive strategy for each of the releases and drive messaging as to what we're doing in each of those releases. And how do we get in touch with you on social uh, media, oh, Jeff? And, yeah, I forgot that. At Bax on Tap, I'm fully committed. I'm fully all in on OnTap, so it's uh, at B-A-X on Tap. That's good. That's good. You have a uh, finely integrated Twitter handle there. I am I am fully vertically integrated. If we ever change the name of the product, I just I don't know what I'm going to do. You're so, full stack. Yeah. I'm full stack, exactly. There you go. <laughs> all in. All right. All right, so let's jump right in to what we're going to talk about this week. We're going to talk about the ONTAP 9.2 release. Before we do that, uh, my understanding is is you're in Las Vegas right now for Converge? I am in Las Vegas for Converge. Converge is the, the new name for um, what we've traditionally called sales kickoff, right? So the new NetApp fiscal year starts in May. Um, and we have basically our entire global sales team and systems engineering team out here this year to uh, to learn about a lot of the new things that are coming from NetApp. Uh, among them, obviously, is ONTAP 9.2 coming out uh, as planned this week um, that I'm helping educate the team on on all the new stuff in that release. Yep, and I, this, this this has a point, trust me. And then in November okay. uh, timeframe, we also have Insight, right? Correct. So yep. we can and talk Insight more Carter. about the next release of ONTAP. So that sounds an awful lot like that was planned somehow. It, it, you know, it might have been. The so timing the, the seems impeccable. Was, it, it really does, doesn't it? All right, Oz, you know, we, I need you back behind the curtain. All right, quit giving away all our secrets. <laughs> what secrets? So with that said, let's talk about the cadence model and why we yeah. do a six-month release. Sure. Yeah, so starting with ONTAP 9.0, we moved to this whole uh, six-month cadence model. Before that... Um, you know, the target was roughly something like 18 months. It might have been longer. It might have been 22 months. It might have been 23 months. Generally, it was, you know, there was always one big feature sort of pulling the train or holding up the train and, and 
only when it really got ready to ship. And then there were a couple others that they were ready to ship. The, the train finally left the station. And, you know, our, our CEO, who at the time was running uh, ONTAP and then product operations, George Curian, um, you know, had a great analogy, which the, the problem is that the train every, only leaves the station once every couple of years. No matter what, as you start to depart, someone's going to be running up behind the train saying, just wait, let me on, just wait, let me on. So you pause the train and they jump on. And then someone else runs up going, you know, just let me on, just let me on. Um, whereas now what we've moved to is the train leaves the station every six months. And there may not be, you know, 15 major features on every release, and that's okay. There may be more like six or seven major features each release, or maybe only three or four. Over the same 18-month, two-year period, you're going to get more innovation, but it's going to come at more predictable uh, regularity, and it's going to be more sort of bite-sized chunks of innovation. One of the things our customers told us, would tell us is, you know, it's awesome all these things you have in 8.2, or it's awesome all these things you have in 8.3, but it takes us a year to qualify because there's so many new things in here, and we don't know the impact that will have on our environment. Instead, with each of these new major releases of ONTAP, they're still qualified. They're still fully um, onboarded a major release of ONTAP, but the amount of churn and the amount of change and the amount of new features to integrate into your environment is a lot easier to consume on the sort of six-month cadence model. Yeah, so as far as that six-month cadence model goes, I mean, it's it's a good compromise to have an agile development with a larger company like we are. I mean, we're, we're pretty big you know, considering a storage company. Yeah. Yeah, we talked about this before on the podcast, but I really question if we could release much more rapid than six months, right? Where we sit in the stack is just, it's where all the risk is. It's its where all the crown jewels, the, the entire business relies upon every piece of equipment that we put in the data center. And, and, and with that, there's just a limit to, to how much our customers are willing to go through risk and, and willing to go through these change periods. You know, they, they definitely need us to continue to innovate and work through the problems. But I would argue that, that if we tried to accelerate much past six months, those releases would just never be installed by anybody. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm honestly expecting that there will be customers who will deploy every year, right? They'll skip a release or... Or something totally. along those lines. We're not anticipating, yeah, we're not anticipating that every customer is going to absorb every release just like they did in the past, but this gives them a little more regular cadence of when things arrive. And, and you're right. I mean, both as a, as a factor of the legacy of how we were shipping and the pivot to that, I mean, moving to six months has been a pretty seismic pivot as it is. And then the criticality of where we sit at the stack. I mean, you can drop a packet or you can have a server that reboots and it could have negative impact. But if you lose data, it's kind of game over, right? You don't get to you don't get to lose data, right? We treat that as very as a very solemn responsibility, and we're not a you know if you're web facing sort of web service or something, and you can just do code change almost constantly. And when you're quote shipping a new release, it just means that something behind the scenes of your web page has changed. That's something, right? But when you're operating mostly on appliances um, that have to be loaded, have to be updated, have to be checked, I mean, there's just there's an amount of churn that's that's unacceptable to go. So, so I don't, I don't see us going any faster than six months. But six months seems to be this nice cadence that just lines up. But some customers that that we're kind of almost calling our innovation customers are going to adopt every six months. Maybe people will adopt in their test dev environments every six months and qualify releases. But you know, some of our customers um, who aren't sort of don't feel the need to be on that leading edge. Um, and it's not the leading edge because everything still goes through QA. You know, everything still is, is a major release of ONTAP. So, but it's definitely leading edge. Other customers may choose to just go once a year. And, um, you know, Justin, I think you, you made the reference to every basically May and November, right? So they are lined up to every calendar year Q2 and calendar year Q4. And how that's coming out looking so far is every May and November, 
And we chose that, you know, partially that's just where everything was lining up. But yeah, there was some conscious decision there to try and line it up in May and November because May right now is when we kick off our new fiscal year and we train our new teams and we want to enable them with the new release of ONTAP so they can go out and, and start up conversations with customers as they finish off the fiscal year last month. And now it's, okay, what's new? What new conversations can, can we start to have about what new capabilities of ONTAP? And then November is obviously right around the time of our user conferences, right? So typically Insight in, it, it moves around a little bit, but October or so usually um, in Las Vegas for our Americas and APAC customers. And then following usually a month later um, it, for our EMEA customers, the last couple of years has been in Berlin. Um, so depending exactly on when that ONTAP release drops, um, it may be right after both Insights or maybe bracketed by Insight, but it definitely um, is right there so we can talk about the next major release of ONTAP. So you know, we're looking forward to right now. I don't think it's much of a spoiler to say, um, you know, this November, it'll most likely be an ONTAP 9.3 dropping. Um, and, and that's the whole goal of the cadence model is 9.2 this May, 9.3 November, and so on to 9.4 and 9.5. And hopefully in a year or two, we'll figure out what we do when we hit 9.9 and have to come up with a solution. So. Yeah, I mean, it's it's good because it's predictable for customers because I get a lot of questions like, when's the next release coming out? Yeah. And I always have to be very vague, like, you know, soon-ish. But now I can say in six months, yeah. right? And then and it's pretty accurate, you know, and yeah. we move on. Um, so you mentioned yeah. customers You mentioned customers that may want to upgrade per year. There's actually another valid reason for that, and that's because of the change in the support models, right? The, the long-term support release versus right. the non-LTS release. Uh, so right. 9.2 is going to be a non-LTS, and then, of course, 9.3 will be a long-term support uh, or long-term service release. So if you could go into a little bit of detail about what that means for customers. Sure. And and I will uh, refer people on our website because support policy is all laid out. So just in case I misspeak on any aspect of it, that, that's where the official support policy is. But basically what we got to was um, candidly for ourselves and our customers and the ecosystem of partners, right, because we have to do QA on all our products and then our partners, our technology partners have to QA against those and, and so forth. It starts to get very tricky if you go from a model where in a five-year span, so typically on our on our FAS or AFF controllers, you can buy five years of hardware support. And in those five years, you would typically have, what, two or three or four major releases of ONTAP to all of a sudden having 10 major releases of ONTAP on it. And that does become, uh, very candidly, that does become a challenge to maintain that full level of support and patches and um, QA testing and, and testing against everything else for 10 different simultaneous major releases. So uh, the... The compromise that we made, um, to be quite candid, was we want to be do all the QA, have every major release come out being a fully production-ready version. So I, I want to be very clear on that. The non-LTS versus LTS distinction has absolutely nothing to do with the quality of the code. Both of them are absolutely major releases that customers can adopt and enjoy and use with confidence. However, the sort of even releases like 9.2 are not the what we call long-term support releases. So 9.1 was the first long-term support release. 9.3 should be another long-term support release. And that has that sort of traditional multiple years of um, primary support and then several years of extended support before we would expect you to transition off. Instead, with 9.2 and other releases, you would typically get a full year of what we would call sort of primary support. I forget the exact term for it, but it's generally means, you know, we're going to apply bug fixes. If there's any sort of problem with it, we're going to do our active development on that code line. We're going to get you that release. After that first year, what you might hear is um, if you call into support on an issue about it, 
we're certainly going to work with you. We're going to try and solve it. If it's some major issue at our discretion, we'll still try and fix it. But what you might hear is, okay, the fix for that is really going to be a 9.3, and in order to consume that fix, we'd like you to go to that. And I know that that's a major step for some customers. Um, by that point, by the way, 9.3 will have been out for at least six months, right, or longer. Yep. Um, so it's not like we're asking people to move to a release that, that exists already. Um, but that's kind of that's kind of the difference between non-LCS and LCS. With customers who are consuming these even releases, I, I think of them as more innovation customers who, if they're willing to consume every six months, it implies to me that they'd be willing to move to a next version of ONTAP at least within a year, right? It should never be a problem for them because they're consuming every six months anyways. Yeah, and that, that basically and that, allows you to not have customers out there running ONTAP 6, because we do have people yeah. still running that. Yeah, and there's still, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's fun to look at the autosport logs and see what some of our really old boxes are still sending in and how long they've been up for, right? Yeah. It's a testament to ONTAP, right? Well, and it, I, really, it, it is a testament to ONTAP. That, I, I think that really, I mean, people need to remember, like, th these are all data-driven decisions. We understand how our customers consume our products. We understand how these things are used in the real world and, and, and what the tendencies are for very valid reasons that are outside of a variety of controls, right? And it just is what it is. And, and we believe that this model is going to allow us to serve both sides of the street, the customers that require more rapid innovation and, and us to take more incremental bites and work through problems near real time with them, as well as simultaneously providing those rock bed uh, uh, platforms that, that, that businesses can be built upon long term. Yeah, and, and the reality is, I mean, when you're dealing with an LTS, you're dealing with three years. I mean, you can yeah. sit on it for three years if you want yeah. to, right? I mean, you're not yeah. being forced. Yeah. Now, short-term releases or non-LTS, 12 months. But, you know, plan your upgrades accordingly. Start yep. upgrading based yep. on the type of release. You know, I, I know this sounds a little bit like spin, but what I tell people is if you need to, um, pretend like the even releases don't exist, right? So 9.1, 9.3, and so on. We've taken absolutely nothing away. In fact, yeah. we're actually releasing still quicker every 12 months instead of every 18 months. You get that full five years, right? So the three years of full support and then the two years of extended support that you've always gotten. In fact, you get it with more rigor because we've actually laid out exactly how long you're going to have support on that release and exactly when successive releases are going to come. And so for our, I don't want to call them conservative customers, but for our sorry, conservative enterprise customers, they're going to have that rigor. They're going to know exactly when it's coming. They're going to know exactly how long they have support for. They're going to know exactly when the successive releases are coming so that they can qualify those releases and still be under support, right? It's a lot more sort of enterprise conservative friendly. And then if you put in the fact that as a bonus, as a cherry on top, we're going to have these even releases with a heck of a lot of cool innovation coming every six months. And if you want to consume them, great. If you want to consume every six-month release, and you've got that sort of innovation engine within your company, go for it. If you're a conservative enterprise company and there's one killer feature that you want to absorb just that once, you can make the investment decision. It's not a non-major release. It's still a major release. So you can make the investment decision that as a one-off, you're going to qualify 9.2. You're going to run 9.2 with the understanding that you're investing a little bit more because you know you'll be switching to 9.3 six months later. And you can make that on a release-by-release -release choice. So it really is. The funny part is we talk about LTS and non-LTS, and it feels a little bit like we're taking something away. But if you look at our baseline state with 8.0 and where we started, we're actually adding in more rigor and more predictability with the same or longer support window from our annual releases and then giving yet another option to people if they want to absorb innovation quicker. So I'm actually pretty excited about that model. Well said. Excellent spin. <laughs> spin I, yeah, doctor. You know, I'm ready to... 
I'm ready to be on the no spin zone. So, yeah, there we go. Or whatever, whatever that. I don't, I don't know that that exists anymore, fortunately. <laughs> no, I mean, I it's, it's, it, does, it was it, actually right? a valid point, yeah. Jeff. I, I, I kid, I kid. All right. No, we, no, I know. We, we've talked enough about this support model now. Let's get into like the meat of this. This, it's, is, what, it's, this is what the people are waiting for. It's good, though. We've never addressed it on the show. I'm we glad haven't. that we took yeah. 10 minutes I, and just f- thoroughly explained yes. that for anyone it, who listens so that there's no confusion. Evil. It was. Yeah. But now, yeah. without further ado, let's get into the but meat. Now. The meat and potatoes of ONTAP 9.2. Let's start off with the... Uh, 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 little voice crack? You getting gosh. excited, man? Hitting puberty again. I'm getting so excited. Uh, <laughs> the simplicity. Let's talk about the new simplicity <laughs> feature functionality in ONTAP 9.2. Sure. So everything, you know, moving forward, uh, simplicity is it's kind of funny because you look at simplicity and it's not a feature, right? It's not something new we ship. It's, it's this ongoing process where for the last two, three years, uh, we've been doubled down on simplicity. And I'll, I'll be candid, and I think if you talk to anyone serious about NetApp, we'll, we'll be candid about this, right? We added so much to ONTAP over the last decade. I mean, if you really look at it as the industry's leading number one OS and the SAN and the NAS features and everything we've done with all flash and everything, I mean, we piled this thing high. We went to the salad bar and added just about everything you would ever need from a storage OS on It's top, a Dagwood right? sandwich. And in the... Yeah, it, it, it's pretty darn big. And, and in the process, we went from being a toaster, right, to going to a toaster oven. And now we're basically, we were at short order kitchen status, right, where you could order just about everything, but you had to know the secret menu and you had to know what to ask for and, and all sorts of other things. So we've taken this multi-year journey. And anyone who tells you that, oh, in the next release, everything will be simple of any product, not just ours, anything, right, you should, you know, ignore them and ask them to politely leave your office because it's a lying vendor in front of you, right? But what we're on is this journey to go back to simplicity and not just by papering over the complexity of the system and having a nice shiny GUI. That's part of it. We've made tremendous improvements in the GUI. One of the obvious things we did in ONTAP 9.2 is add the ability to expand the cluster directly within System Manager, right? As a clustered scale-out OS, that would seem to be an important thing to be able to do. So that's an ONTAP 9.2. So there are all those important things we've done within the GUI, and those are critical, but it's more about baking simplicity directly into the system with the things um, that we'll talk more about during the session, but, you know, balanced one placement, um, application-based provisioning of workloads, um, expanding QoS to QoS minimums as well. All of these things are really about taking it away from having to manage individual storage objects down at the LUN level and the volume level and, and all those different things and try and manage things based more upon service level objectives and SLAs whether or not you're tying that into orchestration, right? We all know that most of our large enterprises now, people are not creating individualized storage objects, right? Everything's orchestrated through some sort of framework. But whether you're doing that through an orchestration framework or whether you are actually creating, you know, individual storage artifacts directly on storage, that simplification works in both cases. It's either the policy in the GUI that lets you go in and set up your applications by SLO or it's the API and the interface that lets your overall orchestration engine go in and call those exact same sort of features to deploy things the right way on the storage without having to instruct every orchestration engine on the face of the planet about how to set up ONTAP properly. Um, so that investment in simplicity is very, very real. A tremendous amount of engineering resources that are being spent just basically scrubbing everything that we do and making it both simple to consume from a end-user-facing sort of GUI perspective and API perspective, but also making it actually simpler in the system and built into the DNA of ONTAP so that it can be orchestrated from anywhere. So you, you actually dropped a little bit of a spoiler in there. You mentioned QoS minimums. I did. 
Well, before 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 yeah. you actually get into it, okay. uh, I just want to actually commend what, what, what Jeff is just going through because as listeners of the show will know, Andrew and I have a small war raging right now against the word simplicity. You do. Um, b- because I, I just, <laughs> well, because when you use it in by itself without the explanation that Jeff just provided before and after it, I think I think it really sets up the conversation in the wrong light. But I really like the way that, that we just broke that down, right? We started with a relatively yeah. simple product that was very easy to manage. That's why we called it an appliance. You didn't have to think about it. Over the years, that, that yeah. simple product was was iterated on, and, and a lot of innovation went into it, and it's no longer a simple product. Now it's kind of complicated. So now we're taking those same best minds and, and starting to iterate on that problem again and figuring out how can we make this less complicated? How do we how do we retain all of the capability which is required for the vast majority of customers that that we actually interact with whilst at the same time solving this complexity problem in that light i can totally get behind simplicity as a destination not it but but i i personally don't like it as a feature bullet but it's not a feature bullet. you're right because it's not anything a as a feature bullet. it's not anything we're ever going to be done with right simplicity is a journey right it's never going to be done um and and second it's when you talk about simplicity as well, here's a feature. People think that just means, oh, you made improvements to the GUI, right, or something like that. And, and I think what's been interesting, what we've seen in the industry over the last five or six years of startups, right, is that, and I mean no disrespect to startups about this, but they all start off with, like, 1.0 version of the product. Yeah. And it's an incredibly simple, modern GUI. Because if you're starting from, from blank pages, right, there's so many web kits out there and so many different ways to do it that it's almost malfeasance if, if when you're starting from a blank piece of paper, you can't design a, a good GUI, right? It, it, you don't have to start from scratch anymore. And more importantly, all their box typically does is shove a lung out the front end. And I don't mean anything disrespectful. I'm talking about like the 1.0 version of a startup. And that's incredibly, let's be candid, that's incredibly hard to get right, just as it is. But if all you're doing is shoving a lung out the front end, or like us 25 years ago, all you're doing, quote, is shoving an NFS export out the front end, your GUI can by definition be really simple, right? The hard work is when you have that full short order kitchen at your disposal, like you said, and you're on the simplicity journey of continually making it a lot simpler so that, you know, I guess the best example is, you know, if you go to the Cheesecake Factory, this may not go for all of our global audiences, right? And they hand you the menu and it's 53 pages in eight point font. You know, you, you kind of, you're happy to know the kitchen can make all of that, but you kind of want to look at the daily specials menu, right? You know, you can go order off the 85 page menu if you need to, and you know, you have APIs behind, you know, you can orchestrate all of that. But really, we need to make things a lot simpler so that you can say, you know, I, I just kind of want some meat today. Or, you know, I just kind of want some pasta today. Yeah, what's good? I want my pasta to look like this, you know? Totally. That's, that's what we're going for. Well said, man. All right. Let's talk about QoS. Let's talk about the new improvements, the minimum okay. QoS in 9.2. Or 9.2, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, so we introduced, yeah, 9.2. So we introduced when, uh, you, you would know, QoS minimums was what, 9.0 or 8.3? I'm trying to remember. Well, we did QoS, um, QoS maximums. maximums. Yeah, that maximums. was about 9.0, yep. Yeah. yeah, so we've introduced QoS maximums in ONTAP now for a year or, or more um, to really help, uh, in a lot of ways, restrict performance of individual apps. And, and so you could kind of balance out your system if you wanted to go apply QoS maximums to everything and apply policy groups to everything. And it was good if, um, you know, especially if you're a service provider or acted like a service provider to your internal customers and you wanted to provide an individual application or, or set of storage objects, you know, they paid for 30,000 IOPS and they were going to get 30,000 IOPS, right? So it was, it was pretty good for that. And you could at the same time kind of restrict runaway processes or bully processes if you knew about them in advance and you knew what their performance was supposed to be and you had all your service levels set up properly 
you could go ahead and restrict them down. But it's kind of like a, if what you're really trying to do is protect your business critical workloads, that's an interesting way of doing it. It's almost a backways, backwards way of doing it, right? Look at everything else on the system and just try and put caps on it so that you have enough space left for your critical workloads. So in 9.2, um, we introduced the second half to the equation, which is QoS minimums. Um, I will state up front, there are a couple limitations on it, at least to start. It's available just for our AFS platforms. That's our all-flash FAS. And it's available for SAN just to start, um, which, let's be very clear, none of us are, you know, jumping up and down happy about that. Those are time-to-market considerations of when we can get things out and when we can QA them. Um, going back to the cadence model for a second, yeah. I think you can actually expect to see this more from NetApp, um, where if something's ready and it's not ready on everything, our intent is going to be to have it ready on everything, and we will get there over successive releases, but we're not going to hold something because we know that six months down the line, we get another shot to do it. So in this particular case, we were able to qualify it on all flash pads. That's typically where our customers are moving to for business critical workloads anyways, and we were able to qualify for SAN. And while there's certainly business critical workloads that run on NAS, and I'm a um, you know, NAS fanboy at heart, heart myself, um, it, it's, it's fair to say that our absolutely mission-critical apps at, at the majority of our customers are typically running on SAN. And we've had tremendous tremendous growth in the SAN market over the last couple of years, actually the fastest-growing SAN vendor out there. So it just made sense to target this in 9.2 first. We certainly intend in a future release to follow on with that NAS support and with support on uh, hopefully platforms beyond AFS. But so 9.2, you can go in and set a policy group, and on your given – uh, LUN or volume with LUNs, you can go ahead and set a, just like it says, a minimum uh, IOPS. So if you set something to be 30,000 IOPS, no matter really what's happening on the system, it's going to go ahead and ensure that that individual storage object gets the 30,000 IOPS you've, uh, been that it's been promised. And uh, I'll pause for a second if you have questions here, but it's actually pretty cool how we've done it, and we built it into the entire stack of ONTAP. It's not just a glom on. It's actually built all the way from the disk level up to the essentially protocol layer, how we do the QoS minimums. Yeah, I, man, if you're asking me to ask questions, I want to go all the way in. I want to know, like, how we determine what the available pool is, like, what, what, what is the total uh, pool of minimums? How, how, do we, how do we decrement from that when we, when we hand out applications? Like, I, I think the deeper we go into this feature, the better for our listeners. Okay, absolutely. And I'll, I'll, take, you as, I'll take you as far as the looking glass as I can, and then I will wave a white flag and... and uh, We'll, we'll see. Justin may even know more than me on it. We'll, we'll, we'll explore the depth of my knowledge, and then I'll refer you to all the different TRs and different things we, we have out there. But what I'll say about it is so there were a couple of questions you had built in there. Um, the first thing we do is we have this feature that's built on top now called Headroom. And it's a dynamically generated metric of basically how much performance capacity is available in the system. And we base that on something that we call basically the sort of optimal point for the system. It's basically the advertised performance capacity for the system. And that's a little yeah. more complicated than that because depending upon your workload mixes and, you know, block sizes and all sorts of other things. But basically, if we put an SPC1 benchmark out there, which we have in our system, you can see that's the end capacity uh, and performance capacity that we end up advertising. So whether that's 200,000 IOPS or 250,000 IOPS or a cluster doing a million IOPS, that's the point at which we say this is how much we're basically saying the system can do. Now, Storage systems can always do more than what you say they can, but we call that the knee of the curve. And by that, I mean you start to see the latency, which 
up to that point may have been, you know, on our AFF system might be 0.5 milliseconds latency, 0.6, 0.7, and roughly going up towards that one millisecond line. Um, I think with our SPC1, we basically capped it out at 0.8 milliseconds. And then when you go past where the vendor says that the system is going to be able to perform, basically what's happening is for every extra IOP you're getting, the amount of latency you're adding is increasing. And the line is sharply turning vertical, if you can imagine in your head, right? So you may get another 10 IOPS out, but you get another 0.01 milliseconds of latency. And then you go farther along, and then for every 10 IOPS, you're getting 0.1 milliseconds of latency, and then for every 10 IOPS, and so on and so forth. So that, that curve starts to go vertical. So the optimal point is the point at which the system is still basically scaling linearly up to that point. It's predictable performance up to that point. And that's what we call 100% of the performance capacity of the system. So then we go ahead and we take the workloads that are already running on top of it, so the performance capacity that's already being used on the system, we subtract that from the optimal point, and that gives us a metric called headroom. And headroom is built directly in Tomcat 9. It's exposed through different tools like the uh, on-command performance manager and increasingly through things like system manager and, and others. Um, and basically what it does is it tells our system, it tells our end users, and more importantly, it tells some of these new things like balanced placement that we'll talk about. This is how much capacity is left on the system. You can put this much more on the system if you want to. And you could certainly still overload a system. And in fact, the reason for QoS minimums is you can run a system at 115%. The goal then of a QoS minimum is saying, okay, we know that some of your workloads on the system are going to get shanked. Let's just be honest. You're running at 115%. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Some of your workloads are going to start to get some pretty unacceptable latency. If you haven't set a, any sort of QoS on the system, that pain is going to be distributed roughly evenly across all of your workloads. If you have set QoS minimums, we're going to provide that, you know, we're going to provide generally that sub-millisecond latency to those workloads at the IOPS and restrict any pain from them. In fact, the higher the floor you set, the higher the QoS minimum you set, the more weight we're going to give to delivering on that QoS minimum and shift all the pain of overburdening the system onto any of the workloads that are not protected. Does that make sense, at least? It does. It does. The only uh, follow-on that I would have that I didn't hear addressed in that is, uh, do, do I mean, and I guess this is almost a yes or no. I don't need you to actually get into the numbers because this may be something that we don't want to publicly advertise on the Internet. But um, it do, does, when, when I buy an A300, right, is there a number inside ONTAP that says this platform is capable of X or, or how does it figure out what that minimum is, right? Because if I give it 12 SSDs, it has a less, yeah. the pool is smaller than if I give it 24 of them, right? I mean, to a certain extent, the controllers absolutely have bottlenecks, but because this is in solid fire, this is FAS uh, and AFF, I can, I can build dynamic systems that scale to the customer. How is ONTAP dynamically building what that minimum pool is? Yeah, so it, it you know, at, at some point you're going a little past my understanding of it. What I do know, uh, and I'll tell you what I do know, is that it is a dynamically generated statistic, basically. It is a dynamically generated um, metric. So when, when ONTAP goes in, when ONTAP 9 goes in, it knows what's attached to its system. It knows what the workloads are on top of it. And so that number is not some sort of hard-coded thing in there. Like if you're an A300, your headroom number is X, right, or your, your optimal point is X. Instead, it's more, I'm an A300 with this many workloads on. They're ramping at this rate. Um, this is what I'm predictably performing at. And you're sort of self-diagnosing yourself, right? It's kind of like 
I'm, I'm running this marathon. This is how my body is feeling. This is the pace I've been at. So based upon prior experience and knowing what my body is capable of, I'll be able to finish this marathon in X minutes, or I have this much capacity left in me, right? It's, it's not hard-coded. It's dynamically generated. On the, on the QoS minimums, the one thing I will mention that's kind of cool is I did mention it's built into the entire system, and basically what we do is prioritization. Um, we know as every workload enters the system, if it has a QoS minimum and what the priority is, and we essentially set assign a deadline to that individual I.O. or that individual message. And all the way down from the protocol layer through the waffle layer down to the individual disk layer, we're aware of where that deadline is, when we need to get that I.O. back out, and we prioritize accordingly. So the analogy I've been using is, you know, basically the security line of the airport. Um, and they don't do as much anymore, and I think maybe it's because of preferred traveler lines and TSA free and all this other good stuff, right? But um, I remember they used to, if there was an hour-long or two-hour-long line, they'd come down the line and say, does anyone have a flight leaving in the next 45 minutes? Does anyone yeah. have a flight leaving in the next 30 minutes? And pull someone to the front of the line. That's basically what we're doing here, right? All workloads continue to get processed. Even if they don't have a QoS minimum attached or anything like that, they're going to continue to get processed. But what's going to happen is as you queue up at any stage in ONTAP for next processing, if you have a deadline attached to you, and if you're not going to make that deadline by the front of the queue, we will pull and reorder you to the front of the queue so that you do make your deadline and you do make your flight, or in this case, you meet your QoS minimum. So it's not just something that we've glommed onto the top of it. It's actually built into the entire ONTAP stack to ensure uh, that people get the performance they've asked for when they set a QoS minimum. So I imagine in practice, this would manifest itself similar to, to what we see over in the SolidFire platform. If you actually load a system past its optimal point, that's going to manifest as excess latency and the workloads that don't have minimums configured. It, the system will just evenly kind of distribute it over there. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. It, it'll start to punish anything that doesn't have a QoS minimum set, and then you'll just start to see the latency increase. That's awesome, man. That, that is exactly what our customers asked for, right? They wanted the ability to balance yeah. from the other side of the spectrum. Yep, absolutely. It's, it's, you know, it's great because you can put maximums on top to stop runaway neighbors to, to set the expectations of performance. You know, I, I was telling the story and someone said, no, it's important to have the SLAs on top of the QoS maximums. But the other important thing is when people pay for 40,000 IAPs, I want to give them no more than 40,000 IAPs because when it's the first start of a system and it's not heavily loaded, um, if they start getting 75,000 or 80,000 IAPs, that becomes their new normal. And then when I do load the system up over the next six months or next year, all of a sudden they start getting the actual 40,000 IAPs. All of a sudden it feels like they're getting less, you know, half the performance, when in reality they were getting more than they were ever paying for. So it's important for us to provide that maximum capability so that people can provide that to their customers and their applications exactly what they've asked for. And then the minimums come along and really help you protect your business-critical Tier 1 workloads while still taking advantage of this both shared storage and, and highly efficient on tap operating system, you can still take those sort of like tier zero and tier one workloads and, and make sure the trains run on time. That's awesome, man. Thanks for taking us on a deep dive. And don't worry about the questions you couldn't answer. I think that that was more than enough for our audience. Yeah, absolutely. If they want more, oh, yeah, we, could no, always, no worries. we could always get somebody on here you to know, talk you about know the thing I, You know, the thing I hate more than anything is someone from a vendor pretending and making up answers when they don't know the question. There's, there's so much in on tap that, that even if, uh, even if you're in a day in and day out, right? Um, yeah. I'd rather get back to your listeners with more information than make something up, right? So. That right. is a good way to get welcome back. Yeah. <laughs> Making yeah. stuff up is a good way to not come back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, good. Wait, in that case, I'd like to tell you about the following five things I don't know. All right, let's oh, hear no, it. Wait, you meant that as a, you meant uh, that as a disincentive. I'm sorry. Yeah, speaking of the things you don't know. Oh, yeah. So we okay. talked about some performance efficiencies here. 
Okay. That's what I like to call yeah. it because I want to really lead into the next thing. Storage efficiencies, they okay. probably weren't really a performance yeah. efficiencies. You can gonna, bury the lead on us, aren't you? I'm going to bury it. Go for it. Um, so, Jeff, yeah. tell us a little bit Go about the uh, new feature in ONTAP 9.2 that can give us better storage efficiencies. Yeah, so people, uh, you know, people who know ONTAP really well know that we've expanded DDoop tremendously over the last couple of years, right? It's in line now um, in our AFF systems, uh, added in compression, added in compaction, added in all these new storage efficiency features. One of the things that people have been asking for for years is the ability to have a dedupe boundary that goes beyond the individual volume, right? So it's great to be able to dedupe within a volume, and we're going to continue to do that. But now in 9.2 with AFF, you're actually able to expand that dedupe boundary out to what we call the aggregate level, right? So the aggregate is basically our, our disk pools. It's a collection of one or more rate groups. Um, it can go out to traditionally 400 terabytes, but one of the cool things with 9.2 is we're expanding out on most of our AFF platforms out to 800 terabytes. Uh, so anywhere across that 800 terabyte disk pool, we're going to be able to dedupe if they're shared blocks within a volume or cross-volume dedupe now in 9.2. So um, you may hear it referred to as kind of expanded dedupe. Internally, the feature is called aggregate inline dedupe, and it will be available in 9.2. Before we move what? on further into the aggregate inline dedupe, let's talk about that thing that just got mentioned that kind of just was in passing. You, you mean that, that bomb yeah. that just got dropped in the middle of a conversation? The 800 terabyte bomb? Yeah. So, yeah, so aggregates yeah. are now much, much larger. They doubled, essentially. So they were 400 before, yeah. now they're 800. I, that, I was pushing for a petabyte just so it would be easier to remember, but I got loaded down. So, you know. But, yeah, 800. Yep, and only for certain platforms, right? This is in all platforms. But those damn engineers yeah, using math. The top end part, yep. I know, right? Yeah, all right. It's, it's for most of the top line part. It's for most of the top line uh, AFF platforms out there, especially as customers are starting to consume those fifteen point three terabyte SSDs, which still makes me laugh yeah. every time I say it. And uh, you know, at Insight, we had the uh, gentleman from one of our partners, Samsung, up on stage holding a thirty terabyte ish SSD, right? So we know that's coming down the pipe. Um, you know, no exact dates on that yet, but it started to become very silly to build a RAID group of any decent size or an aggregate of any decent size at 400 terabytes. And it makes me laugh, but that really, in addition to providing this bigger pool that you could use DDoop on and different things like that, it was partially just a pure logistical problem of 15 terabyte or larger drives don't fit nicely in a 400 terabyte aggregate anymore with any sort of efficient RAID. Uh, so we went up to 800 terabytes with 9.2. So as far as in, inline yeah. aggregate DDoP, it's, it's inline only, right? It's no post-process currently, right? No post-process currently. Definitely something we're interested in, in doing for the future. But okay. yeah, in the first release, inline. So, so walk us through some of the value prop behind why someone would really care about inline aggregate DDoP if they don't know about it. Well, so it does It does provide additional savings on, on multiple different workloads, right? Obviously, um, you know, virtual workloads, it depends upon how you provision things out, and, and you guys are probably even more familiar with this than I am, but, you know, there's certainly workloads like VDI where if you're actually going through and, and patching your VMs and they're across multiple different data stores, you're pushing essentially the same patches into every data store. Yep. Um, being able to inline capture those patches is probably the most obvious and clean example of where it's going to provide traditional, a huge amount of savings, right, because we've always done sort of always, I shouldn't say always, but over the last year or two, we've been able to capture them as they went to each data store. But then when you move on to data store number two, assuming it's in a different volume, right, you're capturing at least one new iteration of that patch, if not more. And so on a VDI deployment or even in just standard, you know, virtual infrastructure with Windows patching or whatever, we're already starting to see some savings there. And, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, it's, 
it's a, one something everyone's been asking for for a long time. And on the other side is it's just another sort of cog in this overall process for us of, of data yeah. efficiency. So we still do, you know, um, inline zero removal, right? We still do inline VD with the volume level. And then we check to see across the aggregate level. We still do compression. We still do compaction. So what you're going to start to see as you work with your NetApp team is we're going to help you size it. And based upon your workloads, we'll do our sizing in our internal tools. And we'll look at what your system is able to do. And we'll say, okay, if you did this in 9.1, you would get, you know, 3.2 to 1. And if you did this with aggregate inline dedupe, you might get 3.9 to 1, or just as an example, right? It's just going to continue to add on to the ways that we can shave off more duplicate data in the system and return more space back to our customers, right? That's the whole goal for all of our storage efficiency technologies. And this is just a, albeit very important, this is just another cog that goes seamlessly into that entire process that works automatically to basically reduce duplicate data across the system. At this rate, we're going to end up with everything in one block. You know, one more thing while we're talking about the 800 terabyte aggregate, now being able to do, you know, inline dedupe across that whole thing. Let me be really candid, right? This whole concept of global dedupe has always been kind of one of those red herrings or gets checked off on RFPs or different things like that. One of the challenges always, always with global dedupe is it required you to manage so much metadata that we've actually seen some um, issues potentially expanding over that. So global dedupe is great. Um, doing it the way we do it is, is great as well. So the one thing I'll say is if you look at having 800 terabyte aggregates and getting something like a 4 to 1 or 5 to 1 on it, so you're getting, you know, four petabytes of logical effective, it's kind of interesting because when I go out and look at our major competitors um, who claim these incredibly large dedupe pools, that 800 terabyte aggregate is bigger than their largest system. So from that perspective, what I would argue, and that's always going to change, right? There's going to be a leapfrog, a tit for tat, who's got the largest, you know, system, who's got the largest dedupe volume. But for people who are concerned saying, I, I really want to be able to dedupe across everything and so forth, you can now dedupe across a larger boundary, across more actual data and logical extended data on a non-TAP 9.2 system than you can do, I think, against any of our major competitors um, because our system, even a single aggregate, is now bigger than the biggest size they have on their system. And then in a lot of cases, they don't even have scale out to go any larger. So, um, it, it, you know, getting into fights about maximums is always, I feel, a little bit silly. It doesn't focus on customer value. But I think our customers can rest assured that if they want to have you know, multiple petabytes of data that DDoop is running across, um, we're now able to do that for them. Yeah, indeed, man. Well said. Uh, the same, same nonsense goes in the performance side, right? I mean, the answer is yes, yeah. we can go fast enough, and yes, we can save you enough to make this cost effective. Let's get on to the things that we can do that no one else can. Yeah. Being able to do a million IOPS only matters if you need 999,999 IOPS, right? Up till then, yep. it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your performance max is if you never hit it, right? So it's that same sort of thing. We try and focus on customer value, but it is it is important to know that we have taken ONTAP and turned it into an incredibly efficient race car, right? It can go incredibly fast and can be incredibly efficient getting there. So it's all goodness around that. Yeah, what was it? When did we do 64-bit? 7.3? When was that? Oh, man, I don't remember. Yeah, it was, I don't know. it was a while back. 100 terabytes, right? It was, it was such amazing. a big number. 16 terabytes now to 100. Now we're getting to the point where we're almost at 100 terabyte drives. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Let's talk about some more goodness in 9.2. Let's move on to fabric pools. So tell us about this fabric pool concept, Jeff. Yeah, so... Fabric Pools is one of the uh, probably the most well-known releases. In fact, we did a little something different and actually stood up on stage at Insight last year and talked about the vision for Fabric Pool. 
Um, so Fabric Pool is this concept of being able to tier colder data um, out to the cloud. So in 9.2, six months after Insight, this is our first iteration, sort of our phase one of Fabric Pool. It's going to be released um, or will be released you know, in ONTAP 9.2 when you're hearing this podcast. And in this first iteration, what Fabric Pool will be able to do is really focus on a couple different use cases. Um, the, the most prominent of them, and I'll refer you to a lot of the, the follow-on information about Fabric Pool that will be out there everywhere. There's a TR and other blogs and so forth. Um, but the first couple of use cases, one is for sort of secondary data. Um, and that's primarily data that's stored in snapshots on your system. So that could be, depending upon how many snapshots you store, it could be a tremendous amount of data on the primary system, typically on an AFF system. In fact, in this first sort of phase one release, it does require um, either an AFF or for it to be an all SSD aggregate on our FAT systems. Uh, it's going to go through, take those snapshots, uh, take the older data, and push it out an S3 interface off the back end of the system, hopefully to a lower cost uh, capacity storage. And I'll mention what the targets are in a second. The other use case is on a uh, backup. So basically, when you're using SnapMirror, SnapVault, and you move those snapshots over to another system, you're able to essentially dehydrate that system and move that data um, as it gets older and as it gets aging. Instead of sitting within your data center or within a, uh, an ONTAP system, you can push it out an S3 object interface out the back end. So those back end targets, at least in phase one, our NetApp storage grid technology, which is our industry-leading object storage technology. So if you want to move things out to a central sort of private cloud, um, get them off your ONTAP systems and move them into sort of one central um, repository, you can build out a storage grid environment um, within your data center or data centers. Um, and then the other use case is moving it out to the public cloud, in which case you're moving it out in this first release to AWS. Um, and moving it out to an S3 bucket sitting on AWS. Again, with um, we can talk about security, but TLS encryption over the wire. Um, you're obviously using Amazon encryption to encrypt your S3 bucket there. Um, so pretty much secured at both sides and down the wire and stored out in a bucket on, on Amazon S3 for people that are interested in really changing the economics of, of storing that sort of longer-term secondary or backup data. Yeah, so it's essentially a, an extension of your aggregate out to the cloud. So it's a cloud aggregate, more or less. It's a, it's a cloud aggregate. It's, it's a composite aggregate even, perhaps. Composite uh, aggregate. The, That's an interesting term. A composite or, or a hybrid aggregate. Are we just going like to drop a, all the internal names? We are. We are. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know. I mean, I mean so, we're not. What are you talking about? I, I don't know what you're talking about. But, um, it, it, yeah, it's basically taking your aggregate, your disk pool, and on an aggregate by aggregate basis, you can go in and, and say, yeah, I want to go ahead and take my primary data, and, or I'm sorry, take my secondary data and my backup data, and as it gets older, just go ahead and shift that out to the cloud. So it's, it should, I mean, some of our additional initial sort of TCO and ROI on it, I mean, you can achieve pretty significant savings by not having this fit, especially if it's sitting on, you know, especially those primary snapshots that are sitting on the AFF system, just unless they're taking up space, they're, they're doing a valuable purpose, right? But it would be nice to be able to shift them off to S3 um, and save a tremendous amount of money. So Fabric Pool will, uh, will be able to do that, and it's going to be shipping now. Well, and, and, and also, like, you know, leaning into the iterative nature. You know, today we may be able to offer incredibly cost-effective solutions based on pure NAND media where you could realistically keep all of your data in one bucket. But we're developing this platform for where we're headed, right? And, and we absolutely know that that won't be the case in, you know, five, ten years. So you know, this, this, this innovation, this technology is, is, as they say, skating to where the puck will be eventually, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And, and it's just, you know, we call it Fabric Pool Phase 1 for a reason, right? Um, you don't typically do that unless there's going to be a Phase 2 and a Phase 3. And 
and multiple sequels, right, um, spinoffs. So uh, I think in phase one, we're focused on, you know, that one on-prem object store with storage grid, KWS, um, those secondary and sort of backup uh, use cases. And there's also like a, a third sort of archive use case that you can use in certain cases to archive off data that you're really not going to be using anymore at all. Um, and certainly what we showed up at Insight was the ability to tear data out of the active file system. And that's something that we still are, are working towards, right? So I won't comment on future releases per se, but obviously we want to be able to, to tear off cold data even within the active file system. And we have multiple hyperscale partners out there, right? So um, I'll be really sensitive about mentioning them because it's different relationships, right? But obviously we work great with AWS. We're happy to launch with AWS, but I think you can expect to see us tearing out to many more hyperscales and many more object stores in the future. Um, and doing that across all workloads, right? So SAN, so NAS, um, expanding out to more and more platforms that we supported on. And, and it really is the, the first phase, really the first step of this journey of allowing our customers to basically have the, the right bite at the right price at the right place, right? If your data is incredibly hot, going incredibly fast, we want it to be on your AFF, on SSDs, uh, you know, rocketing performance directly to servers. If it's, if it's cold as dirt and not being touched anymore, we want you to be able to move it out to whatever object store you want on the cheapest capacity drive you, you want and put it into, you know, carbonite cold freeze, basically, right? Just sit there and, and do nothing. Um, so anywhere on that spectrum is really where Fabricool is going to develop towards. Yeah, and I just want to point out, this is not a replacement for backup or disaster recovery. This is just a way to tear off cold data. So don't think that you can use it to backup or do data recovery. Just putting that out there. No. Yeah, and, and in fact, I would argue it actually is the reverse, right? You are moving blocks. I mean, they may be snapshots. They may be different things like that. But you are actually taking the blocks off the primary system and moving them somewhere else. If you lose your S3 bucket, right, through things that might have absolutely nothing to do with NetApp, right, people have their S3 buckets deleted because they their password was the same as their luggage, right? One, two, three, four, five, right? What kind uh, of idiot puts that on their, on their luggage? <laughs> yeah, dude, I need to change my luggage combo, right? But it's, it's, so if someone does something ludicrous like that, right, or, or whatever else happens inside a thread or whatever, you do lose those blocks. They have left the ONTAP system, right? Yeah. So it makes backup even more critical, I think, for people that are choosing to use Fabricool um, because, you know, backup is not, we're moving the data, right? Backup is a logical copy that's being stored in, in some other different way, whether it's a different media or a different logical abstraction point. Um, it becomes even more critical. So, yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I did want to bring that up because that has been mentioned before. Is like, oh, I can back up to something. No, 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 don't do that. More on no, that tomorrow. No, not a backup. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. More, on the, more on that yeah, tomorrow. Yeah, yeah only exactly. you another, if only you had another podcast coming on backup partners. If only. All right, so um, we've touched a bit on cloud, so let's go ahead and finish it up with some software-defined. Let's talk ONTAP Select and sure. the improvements that are coming with that. Yeah, so we've been incredibly proud of the progress that's been going with ONTAP Select. I don't think anyone expected, and, and it's certainly not our plan, that overnight everyone was going to throw out physical hardware and deploy all software-defined Select, right? In fact, what we've said is that you know our customers are going to continue to use our engineered AFF and FAS systems for certain workloads, and then over time, adopt ONTAP Select, and it's just going to be this great mix. And, and we've certainly, over this last year that we've had ONTAP Select available, um, seen tremendous enthusiasm, a lot of people testing it out, a lot of people actually deploying it now, um, and just very rapid growth in it. So in 9.2 um, and in the Select Deploy tool that comes uh, with Select, I believe it's 2.3, we've introduced a lot of new enhancements there. Um, one of those is the ability to now have two-node HA, 
which sounds kind of like a, wait, you didn't have two node HA? That's kind of silly. But when you don't have shared storage, it actually becomes a little trickier to do two node HA. If you have a traditional shared storage system like AFF or FAS or a lot of our competitors, right, the, the actual drives become basically your quorum holder, right? The study reservations on the drives let you know which node really has control. If you're truly in a shared nothing environment, you don't get that luxury, which is why you typically see shared nothing environments, like even like our solid fire otherwise have a four node minimum, right? And so we started that way with select where we had a four node minimum as well for HA, as well as a single node. What we're introducing with 9.2 is a way to do two node HA, primarily for the robo use case, people who just want to put it out in remote offices, right? Um, and we actually built a mediator directly into the deploy VM so that deploy VM that you use to deploy at select now can act as basically a mediator to avoid split brain or loss of quorum scenarios where both nodes might be up, but for whatever reason, they've lost contact with each other, and neither of them knows which one is primary. That's a really good recipe for disaster. So instead, they use a mediator um, to uh, determine which one has primacy for the workload and can continue functioning even in a split brain scenario. So that's available um, in ONCAP Select 9.2. Um, again, mostly targeted are those robo use cases where people want to have just distributed select out in the field, but they don't want to have any more than two nodes. They want to have HA, but they definitely don't want to build out more than two nodes there in the environment. Uh, other couple of things, the other really big thing we've added is something we call VNAS, and that's the capability to use external storage as the basis for the select storage. So this is actually, this opens up a whole new world of possibilities. People are aware probably of what we used to do and still do with our, what's called V-series going back in the day. Now it's called Flex Array and, and being able to take uh, third-party storage and represent it out through an ONTAP controller. Think of this as the SDS equivalent. Um, Select today runs on top of vSphere. vSphere obviously has a ludicrously large HCI of storage providers that are supported underneath it. So any of that storage, if you can essentially present storage out to um, a vSphere environment, then we will turn around and we will take that storage from vSphere, load it into Select, and then represent it out as ONTAP-based storage. So that's useful if, for example, you have a SAN environment um, underneath, but you have no way to run NAS. Um, now you can run basically the number one NAS in the business as a software deployed option directly on top of vSphere and use your existing third-party SAN array. The other really interesting one, and it's the same basic technology, but we kind of we talk about it a little bit differently, is running it on top of something like a VMware vSAN. So for a lot of our VMware administrators, we would love to talk about why and how you could use ONTAP Select or even AFF, um, frankly, as opposed to, to vSAN. But certainly understand that some customers have made the choice towards vSAN, and it's a great technology in certain ways. So if people are going to be using vSAN um, for their VMware data stores, and that's great, and they've got a very uh, strong SAN offering there, but they still need to offer NAS, right? They may need to offer NAS for directories for their VDI deployment or just any other general purpose way. They can now take vSAN build that data store on top of vSAN on the internal drives in the systems, and then present storage to the ONTAP select box, which can then present out storage directly itself. So it opens up, it's basically a Swiss Army knife that really opens up the door to using ONTAP wherever you may have a gap in your infrastructure using other third-party storage and bring ONTAP in to solve that problem for you. So what about the deployment? Have we added any improvements to how we actually deploy ONTAP select? It's, uh, you know, we're continually building out into that select deploy tool. So the select deploy tool is a a virtual appliance, right? You basically load it up, you tell it, here's the ESX host I want to deploy on, and it goes ahead and the actual binary 
for ONTAP select is within the deploy tool. So it just goes ahead and pushes out and instantiates that binary, um, stands up the ONTAP select instance, and gets it up and running on that vSphere host. All right, so a little little easier than before. We're also adding uh, some performance improvements and inline deduplication to this as well, right? You know, we're always improving performance on it. We're, we supported in 9.1, I believe, we added the ability to, uh, to do all flash configurations on type select. So we're always just continuing to improve the performance of select. We're treating it as a, um, a first-level citizen alongside our engineered system, so there's no intent to have it be um, lower performance or lower capabilities. As we roll out new capabilities, um, they will show up in ONTAP Select. Whether they show up in the first release of ONTAP Select or not is always one of those sort of interesting Jenga puzzles about which capability arrives where. Um, but in the long term, it's a, it's a first-class citizen alongside with all the other hardware, so it will arrive there. Um, and the performance will just continue to enhance the performance on it. Um, the goal is that you should be able to achieve Tier 1 performance out of an ONTAP Select box. I think we're most of the way there, um, but the work continues to make sure we get all the way there. Yeah, and just to reiterate the point you made earlier, you can now present block storage to an ONTAP Select instance. So before it was just direct attached storage. Now you can set up an iSCSI LUN and point it to an ONTAP Select node, right? Yes, I believe that's correct. All right, that's a lot of features, Jeff. Uh, we actually didn't cover everything. We, we have some other stuff like ADP support on min and high range FAS. We have some simplified aggregate provisioning, uh, expansions of the RAID tech uh, default RAID group sizes. We also added some performance enhancements like dynamic auto-tuning performance. So if you want to check those out, uh, you can always engage us on the podcast at netup.com to get somebody in here to talk about that. But uh, we didn't want to leave those out from the stack. Or just reach out to your uh, your trusted partner and, uh, and get an in-private briefing. We'd love to come in on site and you, get into it. Yeah. I don't know if you even mentioned my favorite, you know, supporting the NetApp volume encryption on FlexScript now. I mean, oh, now, yeah. How did I like, forget that one? Yeah. yeah, it's like two on. It's like peanut butter and chocolate. I know. Two things I love, security and flex group. I mean, this couldn't right. go wrong. Yeah, I was actually starting to yeah. write that section up in the TR before we got here. I'm so. Are, are you very cool? Are you secretly saving the flex group stuff for its its own podcast? Is that what's going nah, on? Here? I think we've had we've had our own podcast on that, and that was that was episode forty six. Um, <laughs> but uh, episode sixty three was fabric pool. If you're interested in fabric pool, we actually talked a bit more about that. But. Um, I want to respect Jeff's time. He's been here uh, very graciously. Uh, we had to do a little restart, and he stuck around for us. Uh, Jeff is at Converge, <laughs> and he is actually due to be on stage anytime now. So, Jeff, thanks so much for joining yep. us. Again, if you want to get in touch with Jeff on social media, how do you do that? At Backs on Tap is the best way to do it. Backs on Tap. All right, thanks so much, Jeff, for joining us, and uh, we are excited to hear all about 9.2 here. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netup.com or send us a tweet at netup. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher or via techontappodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team and Mr. Jeff Baxter, thanks for listening. Man, these shows are a lot shorter when we have a six-month cadence. I I'll tell you what, though, you know... The, the, the other side effect of six month cadence, oh, yeah. this stuff creeps up on you. It you does. Know, little it things does. like aggro level dedupe. Where'd yeah. that come from? It's out of the blue. Actually, I knew it was coming. I was waiting for it. Although, <laughs> NBM flex groups, I totally forgot that was there. Man. Is it just me that's getting Drop the ball. What kind of TMEMI? Oh, yeah. uh, you're, you're a TME attached to the world's most advanced storage operating system. That's what. Yeah, that's, that's true. Very true. I better act, start acting like it. Perhaps. <laughs> Sweet. All right, cool.